with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 launching, we wanted to take a look at the Mission Impossible movies to date and look at the threads that tie them together. So, we asked our friend Mike Reyes of CinemaBlend.com to join us to lead this mission. Welcome back again, Mike. We love having you on the show. Oh, Dan, Tom, it's wonderful to be back again, as always. It's good to see you folks again. That's great. All right, the Mission Impossible movies in general have been game changers in many ways, certainly influencing Bond movies, without doubt, and other action-adventure movies that followed. From the first Mission Impossible in 1996, with Brian De Palma directing, through the last one, Fallout, with Christopher McQuarrie, again directing his second in a row, and now he's doing two more. It really has been something in terms of its impact on the movie industry. And now we have Dead Reckoning coming up, part one at least, and part two coming, I guess, next year. Again, both directed by Christopher McQuarrie. So just to see what we have. We have had six Mission Impossible movies released through these dates, 1996 through 2018. That's pretty good. Same time period, we have had four James Bond movies released from Casino Royale in 2006, Quantum of Solace in 2008, Skyfall 2012, and Spectre in 2015. So not bad. They were kind of keeping up a little bit there. And so to frame all this, we want to really point out that of all the spy movies and spy movie franchises that are out there, or would-be franchises, a lot of them want to be, Mission Impossible is the only one that competes internationally with the James Bond franchise. This is key because international is the key part here. There could be better domestic U.S. box office numbers for one movie or another, but this is a worldwide phenomenon now, and Mission Impossible competes very closely with Bond for international revenue. And I just want to point one more thing out. In the 60 years of Bond, they've done about $7 billion, which is not bad. That comes in kind of handy. You could live pretty well on $7 billion. But in the 22 years that Mission Impossible has been doing movies, which is a third of basically what the Bond guys have been doing, they have done $3.575 billion. That's pretty damn impressive. And the point is here, I think Mission Impossible is on a mission to overtake Bond. And that is why it will be fun to take a deep look into the Mission Impossible movies as the story continues. All right, Mike, get us started on this because this is good stuff. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I wonder how those numbers hold up to inflation because I'm sure that's all just all contemporary grosses added together. But still, to your point, in a much shorter takeoff, yep. you have Mission Impossible climbing to almost exactly the, the same stature as Bond. And... As you had said, 1996. There you go. One year after Goldeneye, one year before Tomorrow Never Dies, you've got this wonderful little uh, little slice of cinematic heaven in the center where <laughs> Paramount decides, you know what? We we had a spy show in the 1960s. Why, everyone's adapting TV shows into movies. Why don't we? I love that. So, oh, yeah. So then you have 96's Mission Impossible, directed by Brian De Palma, Ethan Hunt's first mission where he is a scrappy IMF agent working under the, uh, the, the auspices of team leader, Jim Phelps played by John Voight. And yeah, terrific. Well, 
things don't really go so well in the beginning because uh, just when we think mission's accomplished, oh, okay, cool. Ethan loses almost his whole IMF team, including Jim. Yes. And is now on the run because once he tries to come in and, you know, he he tells his superiors, the list is in the open, uh, you know, mission abort. He is brought in by, uh, I believe he is a CIA officer, uh, Eugene Kittredge, played by the yep. one right, wonderful Henry Tierney. Mm-hmm. Brought in by Kittredge and told, you know, well, this was a mole hunt. There's been a lot of blowback with all of our operations as of late. And well, like you said, you survived. And I'm just going to pause for a moment here because this is one of my favorite, favorite moments from Mission Impossible history. I I'm coming up from watching these movies, starting to watch these movies on VHS with that one. Like my father actually bought the tape, sat me down. I was like, watch it. I know you're going to like it. And then afterwards, he just looks at me. It's like, what do you think? I was like, that was great. <laughs> and one of the reasons why is because you have this beautiful Brian De Palma, Dutch angled conversation. We are on the same journey as Ethan throughout this whole movie. We're learning as he does. And even if you've pegged it, it's still really cool to see our hero in the dark, figuring things out. And it shows you just enough evidence, just enough uh, they give you just enough rope to pull it all together, but not too much to reveal everything. Like it doesn't treat the audience as dumb, but it's very stylish and reinforcing what it's doing. So we learned that this was a mole hunt. The knock list is in the open, but there's only one half. And in order to clear his own name and for the sense of cinematic excitement, Ethan has decided that he is going to go to Langley to the CIA headquarters and steal the other half of the knock list to sort of have his own mole hunt and to make a deal with the incomparable, the intriguing arms dealer, Max, played by the wonderful Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah, yeah she was awesome. Um, I wanted to make a comment about this Langley thing, because in the series, in the TV series, one of the big goals of the IMF was to get in and get out and not have anybody know they were there. And the whole thing with the vault scene was to do exactly that. Krieger screws it up by dropping the knife, but that was the goal. And I, I thought they deviated as you go into the, the other movies. I thought they deviated from what I thought was a fairly core mission of mission impossible was this get in, get out, not be caught or not be no noticed as we go forward. But at the vault scene, I thought was perfect because it was really set up to do exactly that. Oh yeah. I mean, you've just got so many pitfalls and steps that have to go into this. And again, it's not just laying it out. It's like, we got to do bop, 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 bop. It's like they lay out their mission. You see it play out in real time. And it's just the wonderful intercutting and, and weaving everything from Emmanuel Bert, uh, poisoning poor William Dunlow's, uh, yeah. coffee to Jean Renault's Krieger having to, to control that rope and not go above the decibel level. Like there's so many small stakes. Yes. When you put them together, it makes this gigantic chain that you're just, I'm still riveted watching this movie and watching them go into the vault and, and having Ving Rhames, you know, cautiously watching that decibel meter and warning from afar. Yeah, And I love how they have, they manipulate us from the beginning and control us completely fooling us every step of the way <laughs> with with oh. the masks and everything else. It was brilliant. And, and really, for, for the first Mission Impossible movie, 
they take us to exotic locations. They were really the first, one of the first big movie, American movie companies to go to Prague and the, the new Prague and bring us mm. there. And they brought us to other cool locations, kind of like the Bond stuff. So they were kind of filling in there too. And I, I loved how they did that. Gadgets, of course, but Mission Impossible from the series, the TV series, always used gadgets. So that was a natural for them to use the gadgets here. So they packed a lot of stuff into this first one, which was kind of hooked us, just like you got hooked, Mike, right? (laughs) I mean, look, I this was around the time where I started. I discovered I needed to wear glasses. I was finally starting to become nearsighted. The first pair I wanted was a pair that looked like Ethan's glasses from Mission Impossible. <laughs> they were so cool. Like, they were very thin, yeah. circular black frames. It was nothing fancy, but it looked fan- It looked sharp. It looked sharp on Tom Cruise, and it's like, that could certainly look sharp on me. Yeah, there you but go. Again, right from the beginning, you have the opening credits that are mimicking the Mission Impossible formula of showing different snippets from the mission that comes ahead. Yes. So it's a wonderful tease as to, ooh, that's happening, that's happening, that's happening. And whether you were someone that knew the show or didn't know it, that was setting the table for what you were supposed to expect. Mm -hmm. And then the moment that Emilio Estevez gets impaled by that elevator, which is still one of the most brutal PG-13 kills I've ever seen. From that point on, it's like, wait. It was brutal. I don't know. I don't know what to expect here. And if I'm not mistaken, I read an interview recently where Tom Cruise is like, yeah, I wish we didn't kill him because we, we could have brought him back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and he and Amelia were our personal friends, so. That too. For, you know, that's another thing. He seems to like to keep things in the family a little bit. Yeah. They really oh, yeah. didn't know at that point if they were going to actually do another one, right? I mean, they, they're just like, hey, we'll put this one out and see what happens. And obviously it was a huge success. I think what they really did, they made action-adventure movies that involve spies, Versus a spy movie that had some action. Oh, no, I, I totally agree with that. And that's something that this franchise has has thrived on. It is still very much yeah. spy capers, intelligence, behind enemy yes. lines yes. sort of stuff. But it definitely is action forward, especially when yeah. starting with, I want to say, Rogue Nation, you would Ooh. sort of advertise the stunt. And yes. it would be at least one stunt to picture where Tom Cruise is up there just whether he's on the A440 or he's doing a halo jump or now doing a bike jump and speed sailing with a, a parachute. That became a big part of like the continuous Macquarie era. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Cruise. See, for, for, for me, I actually think it's gotten too big in terms of that's all the movies tend to be about to me. There's a lot less plot. Because there's so much time spent on the stunts. I really wish there was more espionage instead of the, you know, the oh. big stunts. Well, they're, I think, Mike, right? they're catering to the audience. They're catering to what people will spend money on right now. So I'm alone. <laughs> Especially now. Yeah. And I think part, part of it is definitely catering to the audience. But the, now that you've just mentioned it that way, Tom, I kind of think that it's a great misdirect because you don't have to sell too much of what the actual plot is. I mean, you still need to have that plot. Don't get me wrong. But now that they can sell these movies on Tom Cruise's stunts, yeah. it's a great way of like, I watched two trailers for Dead Reckoning you know, in this run-up to the, the film's release, and the plot is not that 
I still feel like the plot is still mostly concealed. And mm. I like that fact. It's intriguing enough that I'm going to go. Right. But at the same time, it didn't tell me everything that's going to be. I don't feel like it's told me everything beat for beat that's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was always good because Cruz, I think a lot like uh, Cubby Broccoli, he wanted to, he wants to leave it all on the screen, right? He wants to put it on the screen. That's what Cubby oh, Broccoli yeah. always said about the Bond stuff. Put the money in then put it on the screen. And Cruz is the same way. He said, I, I want to show people the extra effort and the audience should get the extra effort and see the extra effort. And we hope that they appreciate the extra effort. And I think that's that's part of these stunts is just you look at them and think that's pretty impressive. Whether you like the movie or not, the stunts are pretty impressive, but the movies are pretty good. Too. But one small point, which I will circle back to after just mentioning it is another thing I think people kind of forget is Tom Cruise has produced all of these movies. Like he's been a producer and a vital force. Like you said, he's he's sort of like a Cubby Broccoli and a Daniel Craig put together where it's like, yeah. not only is he helping shepherd the series, but he's a massive part of it. Yeah. And again, the fans of Mission Impossible probably were not happy with where Mission Impossible 1 went. I know one person that definitely wasn't. <laughs> yes. I, oh, you know where I'm going? And yeah. I am so mad that the video of this encounter is lost, apparently, or just isn't uh, anywhere that we can find. Maybe MTV has it in their vaults. Yeah. When Mission Impossible, the movie premiered in 96, Martin Landau, one of the original series stars, was very unhappy with uh, the twist that Jim Phelps is a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. And much like Goldeneye, Mission Impossible took a post-Cold War world and it went sort of a jaded, almost John le Carre style with its plot where you have this civil servant that the name Jim Phelps meant something in Mission Impossible. He was the Peter Graves command uh, character as the, the mission commander mm-hmm. through all of the, se- all the uh, season two on. Because you had season one with Stephen Hill. Briggs with Briggs. Yeah, being, being yes, Briggs, Briggs. Right, right. Yeah, you had season one with a different commander, and then the rest of the time was Phelps. Right. So you have this landmark character who turns. Yeah. Uh, because he, he talks about how horrible the retirement is, and, oh, we don't know who the good guys or the bad guys are anymore, and we got to do something about this. Yeah. That's a theme that I swear, even if it doesn't come true, it's probably going to just stick in my mind anyway. That started a theory in my head that that was the crux of the ultimate overarching story of Mission Impossible. Okay. So we see Jim Phelps turn against the team. So it turns out he and Krieger, Jean Renault's character, botched the knockless job. So that way Ethan would take the fall. They would get the other half and sell things, to, sell everything to Max. Mm-hmm. Doesn't quite turn out that way. And with a little bit of chewing gum and some <laughs> very, uh, very physical activity, Ethan, then foils this plot, becomes reinstated with the IMF, and brings uh, Ving Rhames' Luther, a lo- Luther Stickle, along with him. And that's another thing I'm wondering if they ever did on the original series. We saw disavowed agents. Mm-hmm. We saw disavowed agents brought back into the fold. And then in the case of Luther, actually staying on for the rest of the films. So this was just... From from a sort of outsider's view, because like I said, I've I have some experience with the series, but mostly with the movies. This is a really interesting way of refreshing your franchise and turning it into something that is modern that can move forward, yeah. but also just plays with all of this lore that was still present. And you know, as we saw, Mission Impossible was a huge success. Yeah, 
an estimated 80 million budget with an estimated 457.7 million in box office grosses. Not bad. No, they, not at all. They, they weren't <laughs> afraid to leave behind the, the TV audience. They, they weren't really afraid to do that. <laughs> so. Well, no. Yeah, this was the decade that did that. This was the this isn't your father's blank decade. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's a good way to sum it. <laughs> sum it up. Yeah. I just remember the old, old Oldsmobile ads that used to do this. Like, this isn't your father's Oldsmobile. Right. For comparison, GoldenEye the year before was on a, an estimated 60 million budget and came out with 356.4 million. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty, pretty good horse race here. It is a good horse race. Like I said, the, it's the international market that counts and uh, being able to compete internationally. And Mission Impossible is the only franchise that can and does. They're going to be a thorn in the side of Bond's butt. <laughs> well, especially if they don't end it the way they ended No Time to Die. Uh, you're going to change actors who's going to be the lead. Yeah. <laughs> See, I wonder, the way that they're setting up Dead Reckoning, it almost feels like an end to Ethan story. There's been hints mm-hmm. and rumors that Tom Cruise is probably going to be done after Dead Reckoning. We don't know for sure. Yeah. I don't think they need to, and I don't think they should recast Ethan Hunt because Mission Impossible thrives on a revolving team. Right. Like you can very much, you, the, well, as you're going to see in a couple entries down our, uh, down the line in our discussion, there was a plan as to how they were going to shift things over that didn't exactly run through. Mm-hmm. But and the, it's, it's interesting to me when the way you say that is, you know, because there's, there is the plan. What are they going to do? And you wrote an article about this that was like a week ago, right? It was an article yeah. published on that exact topic, mm-hmm. which I thought was a good read. Oh, thank you. But yeah, the, the the article you're alluding to is basically that Mission Impossible doesn't have to end. Ethan Hunt and Tom Cruise should definitely retire at some point because it's not even a question of can Tom Cruise keep up with this? He can. But the thing is, Ethan Hunt is just this, it, it, as you see, Along the years, the stakes keep growing. He becomes more of a liability than an asset to the IMF yeah. because of his his dedication and his uh, persona. Yeah, uh, it ha- all of us at some point. It's something's got to give. Yeah, and at one point he he did say Tom Cruise said this could go on forever because of the nature, like you're saying, Mike, that it's a team. It always has been a team, unlike Bond, which. Basically, he's standalone, mostly. He's got Felix Leiter or whatever. But Mission Impossible has always been the focus on a team. And so, yeah, they could change team players. Maybe Cruz can become the director. Who knows? You know? And uh, who knows? (laughs) I wonder if they've ever had that idea before. We're going to put a pin in that, Dan. (laughs) We're going to put a pin in that because I think... That may come up again, uh, listeners. You, you may want to do that as well. Just just saying. Yeah. But again, yeah. Mission Impossible 1, right on the heels of GoldenEye. We've got another possible international espionage franchise that could give chase. Yes. In the years between Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2, which was released in 2000, we had two other Bond adventures that came out. Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997 and The World Is Not Enough in 1999. Mm-hmm. And... Bond was still doing well. Yep. I mean, I still remember 1999, all the reports were saying, hey, between World is Not Enough and Thomas Crown Affair, Pierce Brosnan single-handedly saved MGM. Yep. So it's still very much the the pinnacle of spy fiction in the world at that point. Yep. And after several years of 
get, of moving things along, 2000 comes along and Mission Impossible 2 happens. Yeah. And I would just preface this as saying that this is the most dude bro spy movie that ever dude bro dude bro. This is <laughs> the living embodiment of Mountain Dew <laughs> and new metal. And all you need is to take into account the fact that Metallica and Limp Biscuit are on this soundtrack and Limp Biscuit does the Mission Impossible theme for this movie. Okay. That, that pretty much <laughs> I mean, even on its worst day, Mission Impossible 2 being like, that's the one I put dead last. Yeah, everybody does, even, it seems. Even in the worst hour, it's still fun. It's still, I mean, you, you've got Tom Cruise coming back to Ethan Hunt. And he's brought in this time to fight off against, uh, stop me if you've heard this one, a rogue IMF agent who's turned coat, Sean Ambrose, played wonderfully by Doug Ray Scott. Yes, yes. You you want to talk about some of the best Bond villains that ate scenery. Doug Ray Scott is in that pantheon in the Mission Impossible series because he's just got this. Yeah. This smarm, but yet this predatory not nature to him. And if it was not for Mission Impossible 2, he would have been our Wolverine in X-Men. Yeah, he was terrific in that movie. And really, I everyone badmouths too. That's basically everyone's least favorite Mission Impossible movie. But it still holds up, I thought, okay. I didn't mind it at all, really. I thought, okay, yeah, it's not as good as some of the others, but not a bad movie. <laughs> well, I think if putting it in context with COVID and what can happen if there's a, a leak of, yeah. of a virus out there, and is there a vaccine or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. I think it actually recasts it in my mind. Okay. And makes it more relevant because of what we've just gone through. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And, yeah. you know, you look back on it now, really, and I, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons is that you think, yeah, this kind of stuff really happens. Well, and I yeah. do like the homage that movie did to um, Tomorrow Never Dies. There's Stamp instead of Stamper. You got the racetrack scenes. I mean, there's a lot of this movie to me, is a wink and a nod hmm. to James Bond. I had never really thought about that. And what's really interesting about Mission Impossible 2, and I wish someone had a copy of this that could be just released for public consumption. Apparently, there was a three and a half hour to four hour cut of this film brought in initially. Wow. And they cut it down to its, its fighting weight of uh, 124 minutes, so roughly a little over two hours. Yeah. And I I still want to see that. I want to see what, the, because the, some movies, when, if you make them longer, they can get better. Yeah. Just yeah. because, I mean, Ridley Scott's done it a couple times. The Justice League is another good case. I would love to see what a longer cut of this film might have looked like because it might have been a little more introspective and maybe a little more closer in kinship to Mission Impossible 1 than quick cuts and metal and yeah. getting your gun off. Yeah. Did well, they, ever, they, they never actually had a four-hour version of it, but they just cut stuff, right? I, I mean, there, there isn't a version that we can, maybe they'll release sometime if they had it. Or, yeah, probably yeah. not. <laughs> I, I don't know if they'll ever release it, but I know there was, it was like an earlier cut. Obviously yeah. like you know, rough cuts can come in oh, yeah. much longer than anything else. And then you find that movie in the edit. I mean, yeah. Star Wars is found in the edit. So yeah. Yeah. And but, this, is, this is also the one where they diverge greatly from the, we're trying to get in and get out without being noticed. I mean, I guess he does try to come into the, the, um, the building through the skylight and is trying to be 
undetected, but it's it's over so fast that the whole mission is out in the open. Well, that's just Sean Ambrose for you. He's he's sort of the the stick of dynamite in the middle of all this. The 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 wrench in the gears. He's he's planning like his big big plan is to steal this biological agent and its viable antidote and sell it to the open market through blackmail and through sheer just guts. I mean, yeah. the opening of this, the big pre-credit sequence of this movie is Sean pretending to be Ethan yeah, and it. that poor doctor into giving him what he wants. And from there, it's just, no one knows what's going to happen. There are masks, there are betrayals. Yeah, there's yeah. Ethan falling for Sean's ex-girlfriend yeah, played yeah. by Tendway Newton, who I wish they would bring back. Yeah. Yeah, she was good. I, again, I, I have no no big problems with Mission Impossible 2. I, I thought it flowed nicely. It had a purpose. And maybe Tom's right, looking back at it, because of the nature of the MacGuffin, <laughs> the virus and everything, that hey, yeah, may, maybe it's a little more meaningful to the world now. So, all right. So we're trying to connect these things here. So my big theory... Mm-hmm. which comes into play more so in Chris. I think Christopher McQuarrie has done enough serialized work in his entries and the entry that he also did uncredited rewrites on to create an arc, a big story arc involving the group known as the syndicate who later become the apostles who yeah, knows yeah. what, or if they may become something else in dead reckoning or if they're even mentioned at all. But the point is there seems to be this pattern of covert agents going rogue and turning to chaos, breaking bad and stealing this stuff and just trying to cause havoc. Sean Ambrose, again, was an IMF agent. He was sent in because Ethan was on vacation to try and bring Dimitri, uh, uh, bring Vladimir in with the the virus, with Bellerathon and Chimera. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, he's like, eh, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to shake things up a little bit. Yeah. And we continue to see that happening throughout and... Again, this is a plot mechanic that they use frequently, but I don't think it's gotten, I don't think it's become overused just yet. I think they use it in the right way. Yeah. And, and really, it, it has happened often in real life. Yeah. And it's not just IMF. <laughs> agents all, all these, there's tons of this in history on whichever country you're from. Oh, yeah. You've had no, rogue agents or turned agents. And so we're, we're okay with that in these movies because it does really happen. I like yeah, that. sadly, the nature of the game. Yeah. And again, Sean, I like it's much as Bond loves to use the dark mirror ever, ever since Trevallium, they love to use the dark mirror as the villain. Sean is definitely the dark mirror of Ethan. Yeah. And just has that. He knows it and he's not afraid of it. And he likes to use it to his advantage. And it's also kind of his downfall because Ethan's just that much better than him. Like he still has empathy. He still has restraint and it's something that he's not afraid to exploit with Sean. Yes. And at least that whole getting your gun off joke where, you know, it pays off where he thinks he's shooting Ethan and Sean just looks at him and says, this is getting your gun off. And then just <laughs> plows into him thinking he's killing Ethan and it's stamp. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. And, you know, again, I think the overall series has done a tremendous job casting. The, in general, the casting has been terrific throughout the first six movies. Really. Oh yeah, right? especially because at this point we were another sort of uh, another sort of hallmark has been established where there's a different mission commander in each film. 
And in Mission Impossible 2, we have the wonderful but uncredited Sir Anthony Hopkins. Yes. yes. Mission Commander Swan Beck and just the two, the, the short moments that he does have in this movie, <laughs> the man's just suave and yes. cashing in yes. and just really like, he's one, one of those people where you bring them in for five minutes yeah. and they keep, You remember and him. And you remember some of his very non-politically correct lines. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> would, would you like to share some examples with the class, my friend? Yeah. <laughs> with the, with the, you know, Tandaway Newton character, remember that one, when he said, ah, she's we not that kind of woman. Oh, <laughs> yeah, never mind. All right, so we won't I'm, actually, I'm actually glad you brought this up with about the mission commander because it, it, I actually had a note after the second movie to talk about that because it starts, because we started with John Voight, who turns, yeah. Then we've got Anthony Hopkins, who's playing it really by the book, but so, so coolly, if, I, if that's a word. And how the mission commander role does change as we go through the series. Oh, yeah. And it's not always, I don't think it's always the mission commander either, because we'll get to see IMF secretaries get involved too, especially with Ghost, with, uh, Ghost Protocol. Yeah. But to your point, you know, we're, we're at the end of Mission Impossible 2. Ethan foils Sean Ambrose's plan. He and Naya sort of walk off into the sunset. Poor Luther has a hole in his Versace and, you know, <laughs> everything is going to get mended in the end. And again, this was, this did okay because it was 125, 120 to 125 million estimated budget makes 546.4, which is respectable. I'll but that's $400 million. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's respectable considering the budget. And I'm sure that's not, that may not even be considering the, the PR spend. And I'm sure that was a nice hefty bill because you're four years after your first film, you're still in that period where you're, you're finding your footing. You want to make an impact, but you want people to go because it's not quite, you don't put the name mission impossible out there and it's not quite automatically a draw, right? But it's, it's getting there. And again, it's still pretty, a pretty good. I think it was the highest grossing film of that year. Yeah, it so, did. It did great. It did great. So yeah. let's move on yeah, to three. Now again, we want to connect all this stuff, right? As we're going along, let's connect this stuff. So right. So now we've got two IMF agents yeah. that have turned. Yeah. And intelligence agencies seem to be compromised. Mm -hmm. And later on, uh, well, we're just. I'll just sort of lay the foundation here because since we're connecting everything, the framework for all of this is the syndicate which was mentioned at first at the end of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol in 2011, mm -hmm. which I bet you dollars to donuts was Christopher McQuarrie and one of his contributions in his uncredited rewrites for the film. Mm -hmm. Brad Bird confirmed on Twitter at one point that McQuarrie did indeed do those uncredited rewrites. And he's like, Ooh, the secret's out, <laughs> but you can definitely see the framework of a greater story because he brings in serialization throughout the films that he actively writes and directs, starting with Rogue Nation, then Fallout, and especially Dead Reckoning 1 and 2. Yeah. And throughout those films, you also see Christopher McQuarrie's love affair with Mission Impossible 1, which is on display through so many overt references, so many stylistic references. There's just a lot of that common fiber in here. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for him to reference his other missions, because again, he started 
a serialized story by introducing Elsa Faust and keeping Benji Dunn and Luther Stickle on the team. Mm-hmm. And then you've got other characters that recur for a little while, like uh, Alec Baldwin's uh, Hunley. Yes. The CIA officer who wants to demolish the IMF, but then eventually becomes a part of them. Yes. (laughs) But none of this happens without Mission Impossible 3. And it's another bit of a wait because Mission Impossible 3 comes out in 2006. So right at that point, Mission Impossible is tying James Bond for longest gap in between movies, a nice big six year stretch. In that time, we get Pierce Brosnan's final entry, Mm -hmm. Die Another Day, which is a pivot point because the classic Bond formula is really put to its test and sort of found wanting after that point. And while it was, you know, it was a successful film, it got drubbed. Critics, fans, just really, and rightfully so, in my opinion. Nothing Mm -hmm. against Pierce Brosnan or the people that made the movie, but it's just that story was not there. I just, I, I don't like Purvis and Wade's writing anyway. So, you know, the, the, <laughs> to me, they're, they're, they're absolute worst. So, so with that in the air, th- there, there's blood in the water. Like Pierce Brosnan is let go from his contract. Yep. It's a big shock to everyone, including Brosnan himself. And Bond is sort of left in a lurch between 2002 and 2006. And in that time, they, there obviously were other attempts to mount Mission Impossible 3 in different variants. Uh, Joe Carnahan and David Fincher were both supposed to be directors on that project, but then they were their variations faded away. The most we know about either of those is Joe Carnahan's version, where it might have focused on a Timothy McVeigh-style villain played by Kenneth Branagh, if I remember correctly. Mm. And then Carrie Ann Moss and Scarlett Johansson were both cast. They were getting ready to go, and then creative differences split it apart. But in this, in these wilderness years, there was also another spy franchise that was budding, and it was J.J. Abrams' Alias. Mm-hmm. It was a TV series that he had run from 2001 to 2006, where Jennifer Gardner, Sidney Bristow, is engaging in some pretty Bondian slash Mission Impossible. It was like a nice crossroads between Bond and Mission Impossible, I would say. To the point where you had Roger, Sir Roger Moore making an appearance as a villain on this series. And if that's not like a stamp, like a sort of stamp of good luck, I don't know what is. Yeah. But eventually this helped J.J. Abrams become the heir apparent and he got Mission Impossible 3. Yeah. He brings Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orki to help him write the movie. And before we know it, a new adventure was finally here in May 2006. And I would say that this is kind of the goldfinger of Mission Impossible. This was the one that really hammered everything in, that revitalized the formula and set the formula to be what it was going to be uh-huh. for quite some time. And if it wasn't for Mission Impossible 3, we may not we may not have even had the movies that we have now, to be honest. Because this was a very crucial point in the series history. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, even things like, you know, in Daniel Craig's art, of Bond, it wasn't until the third movie that we got Q. In this arc, it's this third movie where we get the the tech guy in Benji, and he ends up being a field agent. But he, yeah, I found that that parallel was interesting to me. It's like, okay, we need to do something to the team to amp this up from a technology perspective. So we're going to bring these guys in in the third series. The other thing is when I first saw this. And they showed the whole love interest thing and him getting married. I was like, oh, this series is over. 
Because most <laughs> most shows, once the main people end up having to get married or they have a baby or it's something. Over. <laughs> but this one, it actually gave them a great tie-in to how they were going to take it forward and they didn't overuse it. Yeah. No, exactly. And that's something that, coincidentally enough, J.J. Uh, Abrams faced that flack when he let his leads get together in season two of Alias. And I personally think the show was fine after that, and it found some interesting ways to to play around with their chemistry and their relationship after that. But to your point, it was a big shock where Ethan gets married and has a fiance and is starting to settle into this life. And uh, James Bond fans in particular are wondering if this is going to end well, yeah. especially with the use of that marvelous flash forward that the movie starts off on introducing us to the villain proper and probably my favorite mission impossible villain of all time. I'm with Davian played by the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't do anything bad. You know, he was always good in what he did and he was phenomenal in this one. Look at his, look at the clip of his performance in along came Polly where like that movie is, it is what it is, but he doesn't slouch. He never checked out. He cashed in. He would always just dig in with both hands yep. and find what he needed to do. And I kind of wish he he had the chance to maybe even parlay that into the Bond franchise proper because he had the chops. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. he was just very good at being cold and menacing and serious. Yeah. And you've got him sort of throwing off lines here and there and just being, you know, a pompous little shit. <laughs> and then the bonus of having to play himself being played by Tom Cruise. Yes. Which is just, I love watching actors dive into something like that. And especially when you've got someone as talented as Philip Seymour Hoffman, just making the most of it. But the whole threat that he gives to him where he's like, do you have a wife, a girlfriend? I'm going to find her. Yeah. He was her. terrific at that. Oh my God. You, yeah, I mean, you, you looked at him and you listened to him and you, and you were scared watching it. You're going, Oh man. This would be a hell of a situation to be in. But I think this is part of what Cruz wanted to do. It's like you keep the narrative going and you reveal the characters as you do that. And that's what Mission Impossible has done pretty well is do that. Keep the narrative going. This is what the Mission Impossible Force is. This is how they work. They're kind of like not a government agency, so they could do stuff that government agencies can't do. They're not CIA or MI6, which are government agencies. And keep that narrative going, but now we're going to reveal these characters as we're going through the movies. And each of them does that pretty well. And I think that's one of the unique things about it is that it's pretty good. And you mentioned Abrams, and I, I think he was the one who said that he wanted it to be not just about a super spy. He wanted it to be about a man who is a spy. And that's what he wanted to bring out is this is a man who's got all these other things going on in the world who is a spy as opposed to it's all about a super spy who happens to be a man. So I thought that, that kind of delineation and that kind of specification I, I thought was like, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, especially because it does tie into how this film ties into the overall structure and theory that there is something going on in the intelligence community because, yet again, there is a rogue element in the IMF, <laughs> and Ethan is told about this by a protege of his that unfortunately dies in the line of duty, uh, Agent Lindsay Ferris, played wonderfully by J.J. Abrams' uh, alum and overall sweetheart, Kerry Russell. Oh, yeah. Yep. And we in, are, are clued into the fact that someone may not 
someone may be in league with Owen Davian because Owen's trying to get his hands on the MacGuffin known as the rabbit's foot. We yeah. don't know what this thing is. We yeah. still don't know what this thing is. We still don't know what it is. It's just well, that's the beauty is. of a MacGuffin. You don't need to know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It just pushes things along. And it's just, you hear the words rabbit's foot at any point in that movie. You believe that it's, it's this big deal. It's a destructive force. It slices and dices whole governments and nations. And it looks like IMF director Theodore Brassel, played by Lawrence Fishburne, might be the guy that we're not supposed to trust. And we're led to believe that to a certain extent, as well as we're shown that Ethan, as a man, not just an agent, is willing to track this thing down to save his fiance, who has been kidnapped by Ovin Davian and his forces. And now it's a point where, to a certain point, Ethan's compromised. Because his his objective would normally be to capture this rabbit's foot and to put it away, put it away for, for no one to use it. He has to get it for Owen Davian because Owen has all the cards. And yes. he's like, look, you have a certain amount of time. I think it was 72 hours to get the rabbit's foot and get it to me. Yeah, that and, was good. Oh, yeah. There is nonstop tension in this thing to the point where, you know, we, we see these wonderful stunts where Ethan slingshots over into another building in Shanghai. And there's that one really cool shot where he's hanging by a seatbelt out of a car and just <laughs> another one and takes it out. Like that's, that's another one of my favorite moments. Yeah. And then that amazing Chesapeake Bay bridge scene where Owen's uh, people come in with drones and helicopters and just blow up a big chunk of the bridge and take them out of there. And that's where all the chaos starts. But then as we have said, uh, there is IMF, uh, Treachery afoot, and it is assistant director John Musgrave, played by Dr. Manhattan himself, Billy Crudup, who's really pulling the strings. The man that we saw meet up with Ethan in a, a convenience store to do like a brush pass, which another J.J. Abrams uh, yeah. hallmark from Alias. Yeah. We see this guy. We think we can trust him because it's Billy Crudup. It's the MasterCard voice. He's he's very nice and very, very <laughs> flat and just a, a decent guy. But he's the one that's really pulling the strings. And then through one last burst of action and Michael Giacchino scoring, Tom Cruise, uh, Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt gets Owen. We find out that Owen did not really shoot his fiance. It was someone in a mask, possibly one of the best mask reveals ever. Yeah. And then takes out Owen by holding him up, just letting a car do the work. Just a car barrels in and takes him away. And we see like one of his shoes flop down. Yeah. And then you know, Ethan's got to come clean with Julia. He lets her know that he's an IMF agent and just that wonderful sort of sweet, but kind of somber ending where it's like they're walking off. And if Mission Impossible 3 were the end, you would have thought Ethan's done with the IMF. Mm-hmm. He's going to have his life with Julia. They're going to have such a happy ending. You know, it's it. That's it. Yeah. But we have to remember uh, Luther told Ethan a normal relationship isn't viable for people like us. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something you see in most spy series. Yeah. It's what happens in Bond, what happens here, what happened in Born. These agents can't have a spouse or a long-term relationship, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Superman or Batman or any major hero. You're thwarting these huge powers. And it comes out in a lot of spy movies. The Traitors that we just did, it's a British B-movie. Tom and I did a podcast on that. That comes out in that, too. You can't really be married. (laughs) and connect. You're married to your work. Yeah. Well, and now one other thing that I liked in this in this episode, right, of 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 the of the arc here, is who they brought in for the supporting cast. So bringing in Maggie Q and Jonathan Reese Myers, 
I thought really solidified that team. And it was a really good combination. I miss Maggie Q. She, uh, I had the honor of speaking with her for the protege. I think it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, I like that one. And they tried to get her back. They tried to get her back for not only Ghost Protocol, but also Rogue Nation. And her schedule, I think it was because of filming Nikita. She just wasn't available. So they ended up bringing in Paula Patton's character in Ghost Protocol. And then we get Elsa Faust in Rogue Nation. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, like Maggie Q and to your point, Maggie Q and John, Jonathan Reese Myers and uh, Ving Rames. How could I forget Ving, Ving Rames, man? One of the only constants besides Tom Cruise from the beginning. Yeah. Yes. You start to see how good it is and how important it is to have this team uh, that not only has charisma, but also kicks a lot of ass yeah. and just is really good at their jobs. Like Jonathan is just such a hotshot pilot. And that whole windmill scene is just, that's absolute candy early on in this movie. And just watching him like pleased with himself that he can pull those moves off. Yeah. And then even Maggie Q's character, like as they're in the Vatican, as they're making their way through this whole thing, like part of the distraction is they have to blow up a car. And then she looks over at Tom Cruise, still masked as Philip Seymour Hoffman. And she's like, oh, it's such a nice car. And then he's like, do it. And it's just this wonderful playfulness where it's serious yeah, but it doesn't take itself deadly serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few of those in there. That's good. You know, you get a little smirk, or you get a little. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it gives us a break too, as the oh, audience, exactly. right? <laughs> we get to breathe a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and that's just part of why Mission Impossible has always been able to pose a competition to Bond is because Bond sometimes does get very serious in in certain eras. It does. Yeah, put its nose to the grindstone, especially in the impending Daniel Craig era that's coming. Yeah. But at this point, we're a couple months removed from Casino Royale's debut. Uh, we did at this point, the trailer first trailer is already out. People are either wowed or questioning. And as far as Mission Impossible 3 is concerned, on a hundred fifty to one hundred eighty six million dollar estimated budget, you've got three hundred ninety eight point five million, which is OK. But the budgets are starting to go up and the returns are starting to go down and yep. things. But it's still well received. And I would say it's probably that we're probably still feeling the effects of Mission Impossible 2 at this point. Yeah, because it did what? It did 150 million less, right? Than two. I think roughly. Like it's there is there is sort of a steady decline that's going on. Not as bad as other series have gone, but there is definitely a, a downward dip. So you would probably think one more movie would be the test of, uh, of, of whether this franchise is going to flop or fly. Yeah, but Ghost Protocol did great. I mean, it. And that almost, is that is the one more movie. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that, ooh, the, 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 the decline really was only from two to three. Really, I think, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, well, one to two, and then two to three. Well, one did about four hundred fifty-seven million, I think, right? And then five hundred forty-nine, and then oh no, you're right, yeah. And then five. So, so it's not as yeah. bad as some of the bond stuff issues uh, that they had, but. <laughs> all all things considered, they're making a ton of money on these on these movies, which you know is pretty pretty freaking good for an idea from a TV series. Let's turn it into movies. All right, so now we're on to the next one: Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. We I like that they started naming them. <laughs> yes, to the point where people have posed this several times over, and I've always tried to play along with the game. What would you give the first three as subtitles? That's a good. That's a good one. I'm still, I think I've got one and two down. It's three that's the problem. All right, let's hear one and two. <laughs> okay, so Mission Impossible, when you got Mission Impossible, disavowed. Okay, Done. all right. Right out the gate. 
Mission Impossible 2, you go Mission Impossible Chimera or Bellerophon. You take one of those two names. Yeah. You okay. make that the subtitle. Three is the only one I don't have one for. Okay. All right. We'll have to come up with one for the next show. <laughs> Call it the rabbit's foot. <laughs> the rabbit's That's foot. what I thought at first, but then it's like it doesn't sound as cool when you match no. it with all the players. Yeah, see, yeah, my, yeah. My I problem think, oh, that's good luck. Things, <laughs> my problem with these names is there's somebody who works on our website is when you take Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, that's 43 characters. So if you're going to put a title page on anything, the yeah. title, it's longer than the SEO guidance <laughs> before you say anything about it. So I think that's one thing they're going to have to, if you want to keep these titles, I don't know if you call it MI whatever or what, but they've yeah. Well, the part these. one is, is not helping. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Because Wagner at one point said, the beauty of, of Mission Impossible is that these are all standalone missions, standalone films. Well, until now. <laughs> yeah. We got yeah. part one or two. <laughs> Ghost Protocol is definitely the movie that starts hammering in that that continuity because of Benji is back, yes. Luther is back, and Benji's finally a field agent, and then we're introduced to a new player, Jane Carter, played by Paula Patton, and uh, well, when it comes to that, oh, and oh, how could we forget Jeremy Renner's William Brandt, yes. who is, who starts off as as just an analyst. Yes. But then becomes a, an agent. Uh, if that doesn't sound familiar to some of you people out there, may I suggest the Jack Ryan series? Yeah. <laughs> but but so there was now, some character development and some reveals about that, which was kind of cool. Oh, oh, I I love how they did that because again, yeah. what what was one of the concerns you mentioned at the end of Mission Impossible Three? You can't have a normal relationship, yeah, as business, and we learn that several ways. And one of the ways is this wonderful, beautiful cold open. We've got Michael Giacchino coming back for another score and just has this lovely, right from the beginning, wonderful music just bringing us through into the mission of Trevor Hannaway, played by Josh Holloway, who was on Lost at the time. And since J.J. Abrams was still an executive producer on the series, may have had some sort of deal that brought him in there. But anyway, Josh, uh, Trevor Hannaway is the agent that we might think we're going to follow. Because there was a lot of questions about whether Ethan Hunt would continue around this point. Mm -hmm. So we see Hannaway on his mission and he is killed in the field by an assassin known as Moreau, Sabine Moreau, played by Leah Sidhu, who um, uh, at this point in in history, you're going to want to keep an eye on her. She might pop up in another spy franchise uh, (laughs) five years down, four years down the line. In a meaningful way. (laughs) 2011 anything can happen baby yeah what i I loved about that kill was was how it so much mimicked loretta killing uh or trying to kill hooker in the sting so in the sting there's that there's that long shot where she's walking down the hallway and they're walking or outside and they're walking together you know towards each other and in this one she kills he gets the notice that she's an assassin just as she kills him where in the sting, the other guy takes her out before a hooker can get killed by her. But it's it, yeah. it was when I see that, it's just like, wow, that is so much like that scene. It's a great kill in this movie. And I, I'm amazed that he was still alive and whispering stuff. Yeah. After she she up up close shoots him a couple more times. It's like, man, that was brutal. Boom, boom. Like, yeah, and just so subtle and so quick, too, because it's like, oh, this is the, the again, another great Mission Impossible redirect. He's walking away. It's like, oh, yeah, did it. yeah it's like he he just barely made it. OK, cool. Pew, pew. What? Yeah. <laughs> and then again, it's, it's like Psycho. You have Josh Holloway, this guy that everybody knows from Lost at this point, And you're thinking, 
he's he's star material. He's gonna be fine. Yeah, yeah. Nope. Yeah. Taken out in the first act. Yeah. Yeah. And then someone and then someone's gotta be brought back in to to finish the job. Uh, maybe someone that's currently in a Russian prison on a mission trying to gain <laughs> some information. Someone named Ethan Hunt. You may have heard of him at this point. And then there's that brilliant second half of the the cold open where you've got Simon Pegg helping Tom Cruise break out of a prison. And the time signature that said is he has to be out of there before Dean Martin's ain't that a kick in the head finishes. Yeah. <laughs> you've got this music that is such a wonderful undercurrent of, of, of humor yes. to this sequence where it's like, it's, it's you're, you get catch up in the tune. It's a catchy tune, but then you're still mindful. It's like, wait a minute, he's got to get out of here. Yeah. By the time that's done. And then he's stalling. He's plus, plus all the pr- prisoners are kicking the guards in the head while, oh, yeah. the, while the music's playing. <laughs> it's like dad a kick in the head. It's you like, see, <laughs> it's very symbolic. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. That was good. Uh, that was good. I yeah, like and it. it's a great breakout sequence. And then just his friend sort of sl- Bogdan slowly realizing it's Sergei not Russian? Sergei <laughs> not Sergei? And then they drug him, throw him back out into the world because he's done his job. And then the movie proper begins. Yeah, that's a good one. Ethan meets uh, another IMF secretary played by Tom Wilkinson. Not only uncredited, but there's no name to this character. He's just IMF secretary. And why is that? Because he's taken out in a hail of gunfire after he gives Ethan his latest mission. Yeah. And has Jeremy Renner's William Brandt go accompany him. And the latest chapter in the intelligence community gone wrong slash possible syndicate storyline is that a physicist, or I believe he was a physicist. No, nuclear strategist. Kurt Hendricks, played by the late Michael Nyquist, who was awesome. Awesome whenever they brought, you brought him out. Awesome in this role. Also loved him in John Wick mm-hmm. as like the big kingpin whose son kicks everything off. But... Hendrix is a nuclear strategist who believes that nuclear war is going to happen. But what happens after that is what's important because the people have to be strong and the people have to, we have to found this, this, the, we have to rise from the ashes and, you know, right. be, be, be better again, build back better. Yeah. And it, it's sort of a Dr. Strangelove sort of yeah. spin on things where the Kremlin gets taken out and Ethan and his team are framed yeah. for the job. So now they the the government is about to initiate ghost protocol and things are they basically have a limited amount of time to prove their innocence and to foil Hendrix because he's ready to hijack some nuclear weapons and kick off this big conflict he thinks is bound to happen. Yeah. But of course, that's not a, a, without a wonderful Kremlin infiltration sequence complete with masks and wonderful, w- wonderful, like complaints from Simon Pegg's Benji. Where he's like, I don't get to wear a mask. What don't I got to do <laughs> that scene in the Kremlin where they're doing, he's kind of making it sound the like the water with the screen. I thought that was just brilliant. Yeah. And, and it was a, it, it is a throwback and an homage to one of the episodes on TV where they did a similar thing with the screen, except they had the cameras up in the corners of the, of the, hallways and what the imf team did is put a little screen in front of the camera (laughs) that showed the hallway or whatever so it was a similar callback i think it was a callback to that and and a nod to the original which which was cool i liked it a lot yeah all right so the whole kremlin's taken out ethan and his team are now disavowed there they still have limited resources and they have to travel everywhere from dubai to mumbai i know to oil 
Kurt Hendricks trying to launch a nuclear missile on San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. And oh, there is so, there's so much wonderful wonderful material here with, you know, Jeremy Renner and that that levitating magnet stunt where he has to be yes. brought through these these grates on a magnet. Uh Simon Pegg gets some action. Paula Patton and Leah Sadu get into a fantastic fight. Yes. Cruz does some running. Who would have thought? He outruns a sandstorm. Yeah. And eventually it was very similar to the aquarium scene. In MI. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, but yeah, that's good. Had to hold that take longer. Yeah. Yeah, a lot longer. Yeah, but, that was a long. There were some scenes that were really long, like the sandstorm scenes. And they could, I, I think it could have cut a couple of the little things shorter. But all in all, it moved pretty good, yeah. pretty quickly, and held together pretty well in terms of a story. And maybe the syndicate. Well, good segue because one of the other threads that start that starts to weave in here is the fact that we think Julia is dead. We're led to believe that Julia, Ethan's wife, is dead because there was a mission where William Brandt was there to protect them. She was murdered. Ethan survived and went went dark, and that's why he ended up in prison and you know had these sources that he was following because he wanted revenge. See, now, now it, when Brandt says that, I thought it was totally implausible because how would Hunt not know Brandt. He, I mean, if Brandt was watching over them, Hunt probably would have known it. And so when she gets taken, well, well, Hunt's out on his run. It to me, it seems totally implausible that Hunt wouldn't have known Brandt before this, because well, they meet in the limo with with Tom Wilkinson's character. That's something I got to revisit now because that's very interesting. Because eventually, we we are told that Julie is not dead. The whole thing was a ruse, and Brandt was sort of used as a cover. Yeah, but. It was a ruse to give Julia her life back. We see at the very end after the mission proper has been finished and Ving Rames comes in for an uncredited cameo to keep Luther in play. Yeah. Yep. Ethan let Julia go. Yeah. And it was the best thing for both of them. Apparently she goes out into the world and he yeah. walks in fog with a new mission about an emerging terrorist network known as the syndicate. Yeah. A new, a new one, or is it one that's been... No, is it the same? That's the key, right? Exactly. That's exactly... What they've been fighting all along. <laughs> I I want to know. I hope there's some sort of answer to this, because it seems like the, the most plausible thing if you're going to tie everything together. And as we're going to see with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout, Christopher McQuarrie comes in and continues this story of operatives that go rogue operatives that may or not may not be trustworthy you have ilsa faust who is yeah. an mi6 agent that is apparently working possibly with the syndicate yeah and that's how ethan meets her and we're also introduced it to the charismatic but also very very chilling solomon lane played by sean harris who is the leader of the syndicate at this point yeah and basically we are told that the origins of the syndicate are an old uh, it's an old mi6 program that the prime minister put together but didn't want to use it so he's like okay no uh we're not doing this anymore just to shelve it yeah but his director and the mi6 director and founder of the syndicate adley played by simon mcburney doesn't just let it go yeah and what ends up happening is ethan hunt hears whispers about this yeah this, and they also try to kill him right off the bat and as it turns out, Ethan's suspicions are true. The syndicate is out there. Yes. They are operating. They have unlimited funding. They have operatives from all of the world's intelligence opera operations 
all working together to create just this big block of chaos. Yeah. You see a little bit of that in the Citadel, the series that's out now. And, of course, No Time to Die, the same concept of M's idea. Yep, Operation Heracles. (laughs) Operation Heracles. So, again, has this influenced the Bond stuff? In a lot of ways, it has. Mission well, Impossible. Yeah, you've, you've, you've got the, the eyeball camera thingy that Cyclops has in No Time to Die. You start to see that first here, right, with the yep. contact lens or whatever. Oh, the camera, yep. right? And so that starts here. So, you know, it's it's definitely setting things up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we got that. And then it proceeds into Fallout because yeah. the whole thing about Fallout is, okay, Solomon Lane is captured. The syndicate's done, right? <laughs> no. Not quite. They, the apostles. the apostles and now a guy known as john lark like all these these terrifying names the syndicate john lark like you say it in the right way it's just chilling yeah. but you could also say john lark right i mean that's one of those that's one of those names it could be a happy name yeah john oh john lark that wonderful man if it was jonathan lark it would be happier <laughs> But before we do, John move, Lark. Uh, for those of you keeping score with the money, Ghost Protocol does 145 budget, 694.7 gross. So we're we're on the men here. We're climbing. Yeah, and it's not just, bad. No, and just to get it out of the way with Mission Impossible Fallout, 178 estimated budget, 791.7 million yeah. gross. I mean, when you're talking about three quarters of a billion dollars, yeah. and it costs you a couple of hundred million to make it, that's not a bad return. <laughs> and then you're, then you're bringing in Alec Baldwin. You're bringing in Angela Bassett as the yeah, CIA director. Your casting is terrific. You're bringing in Henry Cavill with his shotgun arms. Like, uh, oh, Henry Cavill is so good in Fallout. Yeah. That was another, uh, August Walker was another role that made me wish he did get to play Bond. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he had some of his action scenes where it almost felt to me like it was almost a comic book character, the way he was moving. Yeah. And And just his proportions. Yeah. The way they, the way they shot that was pretty cool. Yeah. That bathroom fight is still one of the best in the world. And another thread that absolutely ties into mission impossible past is the fact that we're introduced to a young woman named Alana Mitsopoulos, also known as the white widow played by the wonderful Vanessa Kirby. And we are we are told that, she is the daughter of none other than Maxine Mitsopoulos from Mission Impossible 1. And yeah. we'd already seen Max's legacy sort of pop back in with, I think it was Ghost Protocol, because her bodyguard pops up and has the same hood and helps Ethan, you know, introduces him to another contact. Yeah. And uh, oh, I'm trying to, I think it was Andreas Wisnitsky is the name of the, is the, name of the actor. Yeah. Uh, Andreas Wisniewski. Kuznowski. He was uh, Necros in uh, The Living Daylights. Bingo. That's what I was going to say, because he was in Living Daylights, and then he popped into Mission Impossible, so... Yeah, he's good. So, obviously, Fallout brings back Ilsa Faust as well. Uh, Benji... I want to see what they do going forward with The White Widow, because I didn't think they really did that much with her in this movie. And if she's Max's daughter, to me, it's got to be a setup for where we're going with it. I mean, she you know, is an arms dealer who has connections to a lot of the criminal underworld. Who knows? Yeah, and if you're talking about, you know, the syndicate being something that's running through this whole thing, is Max from the syndicate, and now her daughter is running yeah. or whatever. That, I mean, we yeah. know 
we know she's in Dead Reckoning. We know that much. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the Apostles, and we've got the Syndicate, and we've got these other threads through the other four movies. Yep. And so we we kind of think that the Syndicate, kind of like Spectre, has kind of always been there. Kind of like because Bond and Doctor No, he didn't he didn't know who Doctor No that he was tied to Spectre. He didn't, he didn't even know what Spectre was. Well, so, he, he mentioned it. He yeah, said that, I mean, Doctor No mentions it yeah. to him and tells yeah. him about it because uh, Bond didn't know about it yet. So here we have this same kind of concept, maybe that this organization, the Syndicate, has been weaving its way through all of these Mission Impossible movies, one way or another. Right. Exactly what I'm thinking, because, again, you have all the way from the beginning of Mission Impossible, the destabilization of the Soviet Union, the Cold War coming to an end. Spies were sort of left aimless while the playing field was reorganizing itself. Who is the enemy? What is the next threat? Yeah. We need a next threat. Do we even want to be doing this anymore? You see covert operatives, IMF or not, turning coat. And raising hell. Yeah. And August Walker is the latest one because August Walker turns out to be John Lark heading <laughs> up the apostles after Solomon Lane was apprehended and is still in custody after the end of Fallout yeah, because yeah. the big plot was the apostles were going to steal nuclear materials and create bombs to up across the world. And one of them almost taking out Ethan's divorced wife who comes back because... She happens to be in the region that Solomon Lane, that John Lark is uh, targeting. Yeah, yeah. Well, you wanted to target the Vatican, Jerusalem, and uh, I think uh, the, the the mosques and so on. So, yeah, I mean, this. So, we, I think it's believable that you've got the same organization running throughout this. Although they don't, in the beginning, probably didn't clarify that because maybe they didn't even know it. But I think if you're looking back through it. As a thread, you could believe that this same organization has been operative. All well, yeah, long. yeah. Just like the, it's just like the Craig era. Once they had access to Spectre, they retroactively tied it into the continuity. Yeah, where yeah. and it's it's sort of a game of yes and where oh yeah, it was totally going to be that all this time and <laughs> Mission Impossible <laughs> took a a, sh- a lot shorter to to do that. And, you know, it, might, it may or may not be doing that. We'll have to see when Dead Reckoning Part 1 comes out on on July 12th. Yes, yes, yeah. Yep. But so far, that's the theory that I, I want to believe in because it sets up this huge, huge conflict where if this is the end of Ethan Hunt's run, that's the ultimate villain for him. Is something that made him, that forged him. Yeah, and there you go. Ultimately, he, only he can take down. I like it. And I like making it. that a two-parter kind of make, kind of fits because there's got to be a lot you pack into that. Oh, yeah. and yeah. as you say, we can find out in the U.S. starting officially on July 12th, but you can go on July 10th. It opens in the U.K. on July 10th. Yeah, so, uh, there's also fan events in the U.S. on July 10th. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to that, yeah. and I I think so. Right, if this is Tom Cruise's last Ethan Hunt outing, <laughs> Mission Impossible should continue. I would think. And right. They're always putting together a force. So let's within a few minutes, wrap this up and guess what's going to happen next after we have part one and part two of dead reckoning done. Well, (laughs) I forgot to mention something when we were talking about ghost protocol and this was something 
that cinematographer Robert Ellswit confirmed in an interview down the line. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol was originally planning on Ethan retiring and becoming the new IMF secretary. Right. <laughs> okay. was going to take over for him was William Brandt. I mean, that's why you cast Jeremy Renner fresh off of things like The Hurt Locker and almost going into The Avengers. Yeah. He was a, a, a big up-and-coming star at the time, and that would have been the heir apparent after you, like, you know he's in that cast. It's like, oh, we know who's going to be taken over from this point here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what is it with Renner that he, so he couldn't get the takeover of Hunt or Mission Impossible. He also couldn't do it in Bourne. And I like Jeremy Renner. So what is it about him that... <sighs> I think it's just him as the lead. I think, well, Mission Impossible, I think that was just a matter of Tom Cruise didn't want to hang it up. They changed the idea in midstream and that just happened. Born, I think he just got the wrong movie because I was not a huge fan of that movie. Yeah, it wasn't that movie. (laughs) Yeah, that was that. Yeah, it was a tough outing. (laughs) The more that I watch the Born series, I'm not going to lie, I think Supremacy is the only one I really like because Legacy is very shaky and there was a lot of drama with that. Ultimatum was okay. Jason Bourne was awful. Yeah. Like they should not have brought that. Like yeah. that was not the way to read yeah. your, your legacy lead. But yeah. I think it was just some of the wrong place, wrong time vibes and nothing against. I, I think he's a really good actor. It's just, it's just for some reason he hasn't stuck on these roles. If he's yeah. up, but I'd love to see him come back somehow in, in dead reckoning part two, because I think they're only 30% into filming and the writer strike and now potential actor strike has sort of frozen right. in place. So there's still time. They may have to delay the movie again. Yeah. Oh, wow. Time for yeah. them to do things that they have to. I mean, you see all they change with ghost protocol. Yeah. yeah. Well, and hopefully Renner can recover in time. I mean, from his snowplow. Yeah. So. Yeah. It'd be nice to see him. Like, even if it's just a matter of he just shows up at the end yeah. and they just have like a clever line about him taking over. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm also hoping Angela Bassett can come back. Yeah. It's, How old is Renner now? Cruz is getting a little too old to be doing what he's doing in terms of stunts and stuff, but he could be a director. He could be involved. He could be involved in missions and be in the field, too, really. But if someone else take over. But Renner is... I, I, yeah, he's he's 52. Yeah, he's 52. Yeah, so I, I tell you, him taking over at 52, that's my concern would be like, well, how long can that go? Yeah. But yeah. I, I would think they'd have to have somebody younger... Rebecca Ferguson or something. Well, I got interested. That would be wonderful. (laughs) I love Rebecca Ferguson in these movies. I love Rebecca Ferguson in general, just a consummate performer. Yes. That would be really cool because it would also be, that's an organic way to shift to a female lead. Yeah. And that would be a really cool new chapter that is now running the IMF team. Yeah. And, And, you know, Bond could have had the same team concept with, with Nomi from No Time to Die if they had not done what they did. Right, they could have said, "Hey, we're, we're going to have Bond and Nomi work on 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 missions together in the future. Maybe sometimes you could have spun it off, maybe with Nomi, but had a more, you know a team kind of concept as opposed to just lighter and whatever." But I you know, they would do spinoffs. They're so adamant against them, but yet you've got Nomi, yeah. you've got Paloma, you've got these characters that would be great ways to Paloma so would be great. jinx spinoff in the works. Yeah, that well, died. We had that, right? And they, yeah, like you could have had all the ways that you could stoke the fires while you're getting the next one on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we, we've we've gone through this arc, taking us from the beginning of Mission Impossible through Fallout, and we're ready to go to the theater to see 
Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Yeah. We're going to find out if your theory about the syndicate holds. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm we hoping may- it does. And I <laughs> hope it does. because it's Well, good- just keep in mind, this is one part of a two-part story, so we That's may still wait a little longer. Yeah, okay. That's true, just hedging my bets here because I don't want to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that's also that is also something all right in mine <laughs> okay i so. think we've done everything we could do <laughs> on our end so hey that's a wrap mike <laughs> mike reyes thank you once again for partying along with us here on our mission impossible mission and we thank and I you i really like the way you explained your theory here too because I, I think it's a very solid theory so it's uh, a good one I, we I like, like it thank you all right gentlemen thank always you. a pleasure Thanks, Thanks Mike. Always great. Hey, this has been Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Please subscribe to our show or your favorite podcast app wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you spending time with us. Thanks.